Hi, I'm Democratic strategist Allie Lapp. And I'm Republican strategist Liesl Hickey. Welcome to House Talk with Allie and Liesl, where we dig into U.S. House races and the fight for control in 2018. Welcome to House Talk. So Liesl, it's been a while since we have joined our listeners. We have been busy. It's a busy time. If you work in politics, this is the crazy time. Every year when it's Labor Day, I always forget how insane it gets right after Labor Day. It's overwhelming. And how we're just counting down until it's over. Yes, seven weeks more. Right. <laughs> we know exactly how, how much longer it is. Uh, it's been a crazy time, but I will say that what we want to talk about on our show today is how the campaign really started before Labor Day this year. and. You know, I would usually there's some advertising that's going on in August, but it's just a handful of races, you know, four or five races, maybe six where things really start to get heated before Labor Day. This year, there was more than a dozen races where there where there's been millions spent already. Yeah, I mean, we saw unprecedented spending in August and actually um, Congressional Leadership Fund was leading the charge. Uh, with a very smart strategy to get into these districts early to define Democrats so that we could really make this election a choice between the Republican and the Democrat in a very tough environment for Republicans. I think the ground that they laid in August uh, put many races in a position to compete you know, post Labor Day, which maybe they wouldn't have had as great a shot because of the, the drag of the national environment. Um, on um, on a lot of races and um, and there are some that I think we weren't in, in great shape going into August and we were able to change the narrative which we're going to talk about one of those races uh, today in Kentucky six yeah they went up early in I think 15 or 16 districts in August which was which was really early but I think you're right it was it was a smart strategy on the Republican side. But, you know, we've seen some new national numbers coming out last week, and I wanted to just bring those up because I do feel like this election is so nationalized and the national numbers do matter. Um, and they provide, you know, the most important factor, I think, in, in all of these districts. Um, so the two numbers that I think we're all watching really closely are Trump's approval rating and the generic ballot. Trump's approval rating has not been great in the last week or two. It's been hovering closer to 40 than 45, with some polls even being in the low 30s. That's an alarming number if you're a Republican. You know, you don't want to be heading into Election Day with Donald Trump's approval rating nationally being 40 percent, 41 percent. Yeah, I mean, anyone who says that the presidential numbers aren't a drag, I mean, that's just not true. I mean, we see it in district after district. Approval ratings uh, of the president are incredibly low, and that is creating a uh, a situation in our toughest districts where our candidates are just having a hard time being able to get oxygen. I mean, the the the, the the president has been able to nationalize the election, uh, not in the most positive way for many of our candidates, and and it's very tough. And it's interesting because with the Senate map and the House map being so incredibly different this cycle, every time he goes and does a rally in a Montana or in another Trump red state that is in play on the Senate map, you know the effects of that in suburban house districts which is where the battleground is for you know for uh the majority 
you know, we just see that that has an adverse reaction with people who are in the middle and and who are who are the undecided voters who are going to make up, you know, the the margin of error in many of these races. And so it's it's definitely been the summer was a, a really difficult summer. Uh, the numbers that we're seeing nationally are, you know, continue to be very challenging for Republicans. The the national generic ballot, I think we have seen it between, you know, eight and as high as fourteen points in some surveys. I'm you know, I, I don't see it that high in, you know, district by district. But um but you're seeing it in a place that 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 makes outperforming, um, you know, the generic, you know, starts to become very difficult. Yeah, and historically, if you take a look at that, in 2006, Democrats had an 11 and a half point edge in the generic ballot heading into the election, and that's when Democrats flipped the House, picked up 30 seats. In 2010, the Republicans had a nine point edge on the generic ballot when they flipped the House back and picked up 60-some seats. So when you're in that high single digits to low double-digit range, you're really talking about big swings. And, and last week, you know, Politico had a poll that had a 10-point advantage for the, for the Democrats on the generic. NPR had a poll that had a 12-point advantage. Uh, and the Quinnipiac poll had a 14-point advantage, which is really large. It's the largest I've seen. But you know, if you average all those out, you're looking at you know a 12-point advantage for Democrats, which is absolutely where you know, Democrats would certainly like to be as as we head into into the election. And so my suspicion is the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the leading Republican super PAC that focuses only on House races, really decided they needed to start trying to change the narrative. And they went up in those 15 or 16 districts we talked about in August. And then they added another six or seven seats. Um, in September, including just this week, they uh, reserved a million and a half dollars worth of time in Wisconsin one, Paul Ryan's district. So, you know, they're clearly not taking anything for granted and they've got resources. And I thought that was a sign they're going to fight in every district and try to hold as many seats as possible. Yeah, I mean, well, you can't take anything for granted. And actually, the, the one thing that I that I still find interesting in this environment, as hard as it is for Republicans, is that there are just no seats right now that Democrats can walk away from. They're still, I think House Majority PAC and DCCC, they're not planning on being out of any races right now. They know that they're gonna have to be in until the end. A lot of these Republican incumbents, they're very seasoned. They also have their own war chest. They're able to put up and, and create a narrative on their own and they know they have an ability to separate. And there is a path to victory for them minus a, an incredible weight that is on top of them. And, um, and I, you know, I think CLF and their, and I'm, this was really just such a smart strategy to go in and start to create this choice and to highlight the sorts of candidates that, um, that these Democrats are, you know, in these tough districts was exactly what Republicans needed as they start to form their own story in contrast to their Democratic opponent. Well, you're right, Lisa, you're not seeing Democrats walk away from any of these seats assuming a victory. And part of the reason is because Republicans have such a resource advantage on the outside group front, and so they're not walking away from any either yet. They haven't really had to do triage and say, oh, you know, these five Republicans, they're dead in the water, we're going to walk away. If they did that, you know, it, it makes sense. Democrats would say, great, we don't need to play there either. But in a perfect example of this, just about... 15 miles away from where we're sitting right now in Virginia 10, 
Barbara Comstock, who, you know, insiders have been saying there's no way she can survive. Her polling numbers have been terrible. This district has just trended so far away from the Republicans as a result of, of Donald Trump. You know, the NRCC just booked $5 million in ads in her district. So they're not walking away from Congresswoman Comstock, and that is an incredibly expensive investment they're making. It's the Washington, D.C. media market. Um, so Democrats can't really walk away either. And, you know, the NRCC, the Republican um, Campaign Committee, they just joined the fray this week, or last week rather, going into a dozen districts, Virginia 10 being one of them. But then you've got them going into some other districts with um, Republican incumbents in suburban districts, such as Minnesota 3, the Eric Paulson district, um, Texas 7, John Culberson, Pete Sessions in Texas 32. So they're now going in as well, and they're spending on top of what Congressional Leadership Fund is spending. So, you know, Democrats are having to also, you know, get into some of these races early, and, and they're doing that. Well, at some point, it, you know, for, for Democrats, for their, in my opinion, to be a massive wave, which for me is really over 30-plus seats, is that a lot of races start to just fall off and you're able to go expand the field quickly and then go put a bunch of money down at the end of October to go pick up 10 more seats somewhere or 10 seats that weren't even on your radar that all of a sudden you get a pull back and you know October 15th and you're like oh you know we're within a point or we're even up a point and and uh, you know half a million dollars to a million dollars in this somewhat cheap media market we could actually go really go you know move numbers here fast and, well that's and what Republicans did in 2010 right? right think about all the races they went into in the last three weeks you know, my favorite example is Congressman Jim Oberstar in Minnesota, who nobody thought he was in trouble. And the Republican polling clearly showed a vulnerability, and they went in, put an ad or two up on the air in the last 10 to 14 days, and bam, they won it on Election Day. And there were other districts like that, too. Right. So we'll have to see if that's a, a place where we get to. Right now, the polling does not indicate that's where we are yet. And... Um, but there's there's still so much more time in the cycle. I mean, seven weeks. There's only seven weeks, Liesl. Don't say so much time. Seven weeks. There's still so much time. But I will point out that Republicans are not the only ones who've been spending a lot of money with with ads on the airwaves. Uh, on the Democratic side, House Majority PAC, the leading Democratic super PAC, and other progressive allies such as Emily's List or End Citizens United, um, they've been up in over 15 districts as well, many of the same districts that the Republicans are in, sort of countering the spending onslaught. So they've been up in places like Iowa 1, Iowa 3. They've, there's been a lot of spending going on in Maine's 2nd District. We'll have to dive into that district in a, in a future episode because there's been a lot going on there. Um, districts in suburban New Jersey. So they've been up. And then the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee's also been up in over a dozen districts. Um, and they have, I, I would say, they have been putting some districts on the map, both of those Democratic groups that maybe we didn't know would be as competitive as they are even two months ago. So I would point to two districts in Virginia, the one down in the Norfolk area, Virginia 2, Congressman Scott Taylor. Um, that's become quite competitive. And then Dave Bratt's district outside Richmond, Virginia 7, also very competitive. So there has been some spending by the Democratic groups in places that you know maybe we wouldn't have expected a few months ago. Right. Well, there will be 
more spending by the end of September in some of the district, these districts than there ever was in the entire cycle in the past. Yep. I mean, it has definitely been accelerated. And now with uh, Bloomberg making his first announcements, the district that he's you know going to be in, you see a lot of the other um, progressive groups who are coming in. And you know, I, I think at the end of the day um, that there's a lot of money on your side. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> we hope there's so. A lot. We hope so. Well, and you, you've, you've said a couple times, Liesl, that you think the CLF has had a really smart strategy by going up early. And do you see any universal themes or messages in the districts they're doing? Are they, are they trying to nationalize these raises? Are they trying to localize them? What, what are they doing to try to make sure that their Republican candidates have a shot in these districts, especially in the districts that are you know, don't like Trump? What What are they doing to make sure that they've got a chance here? You know, I think what they've done, which has been which has been effective, is that they have made the Democratic candidates absolutely unacceptable. And it's been done, you know, in a variety of ways. If you've called out their sort of sketchy past, their business record, um, if you talked about where they actually are on issues by using a lot of great tracking footage, which we'll talk about soon in Kentucky Six, and it is, it, it, um, I think it's going at them very personally to define them and their character. And so that then we can start to have a broader conversation about, uh, about the issue differences. I think well, they've done a good trying. job of disqualifying <laughs> them. I think they've done a really nice job in California 39 against Gil, uh, um, uh, Gil Cisneros. I mean, I think they've done an amazing job against Amy McGrath in Kentucky 6. I think they've done a great job against Sean um, Kasten in, in Illinois 6. So they've just been, they've had an ability to, to really create this choice, which is what we have to have. If there's no choice created between the Republican and the Democrat in many of these districts where there is this heavy drag from uh, the national environment, it, it is really hard for Republicans to, to um, you know, create a path. And then on the other hand, Democrats have been focusing largely on national issues, actually. They've been talking a lot about health care, the tax cut, and then in some districts, um, they will, they are talking about um, a member of Congress's voting record with Donald Trump, so that, you know, so-and-so voted with Donald Trump seen a lot of that. 95% <laughs> of the time. You know, it's obviously very different district by district. That's right. not happening in a Kentucky 6 or a New York 22 that Trump carried heavily, but in districts where he's wildly unpopular, suburban, higher-educated, higher-income districts, I think the ties to Trump will be a part of the conversation there. But mostly, I mean, it's healthcare. It's a lot about healthcare, a lot about the tax cut, so I think Democrats are kind of sticking to those themes in the early ads that I've, I've been watching and, and been a part of. Well, let's talk about four districts that, that we'd like to highlight. We'll start, let's start by talking about Kentucky 6. This is a Lexington-based district um, that really went heavily for Trump in the presidential election. He won 55% of the vote. Hillary Clinton only got 39% of the vote. So it leans Republican, but it does vote for Democrats sometimes. And, you know, this... We had Congressman Ken Lucas from Kentucky 6 uh, a decade or two ago. And so it's a district Democrats can win in the right environment with the right candidate. And the Democratic candidate is Amy McGrath, who got in the race very early. She's a veteran. Um, she has a compelling personal story. You know, I think when I saw her uh, announcement video and that she was running, I thought, you know, she, what a compelling candidate. She did have a primary. 
Um, however, um, Lexington Mayor Jim Gray got in the race. Uh, I think it's widely perceived that the DCCC was open to him getting in the race. They, you know, I don't know if they put their thumb on the scale for either candidate, but they certainly didn't didn't keep Jim Gray out of that race. So she had a primary when otherwise she may not have if, you know, certainly if Jim Gray hadn't hopped in that race, she wouldn't have had a primary. Um, and in the course of that primary, she, you know, ran around raising money, talking to voters, and there were some Republican operatives with cell phone cameras there. Right. Well, I think, uh, well, she talked to a lot of voters about lots of things, clearly, <laughs> and it was caught on tape. But I, you know, we had talked about this earlier in the cycle about, candidates in in Democratic primaries who really had to go far to the left. And either they were very far left or they had to go very far left to uh, win their primary. Here, to me, it seems like she was always very far left, but she presented herself, and like you said, in her campaign video and um, in kind of in the public face of her campaign about being this very sort of moderate Democrat, which ended up or has now has ended up just not being true. So there has been some really terrific tracking footage that caught you know where she was caught um, talking about her views on climate change, on abortion, and other issues that are just not in line with a conservative leaning district. And these are the types of districts where Democrats have to do well if you're going to really uh, one to get the majority, but also to run up the tab in some sort of wave. Um, I think, you know, CLF, once again, really smart, came in her early, really defined her, put together terrific ads, and now I think a race that people are pretty worried about, you know, midsummer, has they have they are feeling much better about, and I think is trending away from you guys. Well, I think it's going to go down to the wire. Look, there was just a poll that came out um, last week. It was done September 6th through 8th that had Andy Barr at 47% and Amy McGrath at 46%. And that was a Siena poll that was done with the New York Times. And for those of you that have not checked out the New York Times live <laughs> polling site, it's fascinating. It's it's crazy. But that was the, the those were the poll numbers, 47, 46. And look, there has been a lot of messaging going on prior to that poll. So these are voters in Lexington, Kentucky. They are getting deluged with campaign ads. I feel sorry for them. Barr has been up. Andy Barr, the Republican, has been up since July. Amy McGrath has been on television since August 7th. CLF went up August 7th. Vote Vets went up on behalf of Amy uh, August 21st. So there's been a lot of advertising already. So to me, when I see an incumbent Republican at 47 and the Democratic challenger at 46, who has been getting lit up on television, I say that's a race we can still win. And I do think it will come down to the wire. I think it will be very close. Um, there's seven weeks to go. There's going to be a lot more ads out there, um, a lot of campaigning left to go. I think this will be very close. Well, let's play the ad that just came out on Monday of this week, which focuses on climate change. And you'll hear her talking in this ad because it was tracking footage caught on tape. So let's play that. I'm Andy Barr, and I approve this message. We can't be pulling out the Paris Climate Accord. We need to be leading it. McGrath's radical climate plan would increase electricity costs up to 20%, cost nearly 400,000 jobs, and devastate the communities in Kentucky that depend on coal production. It's not necessarily about Kentucky. I am further left. I am more progressive than anybody in the state of Kentucky. Amy McGrath. 
too liberal for Kentucky. But you know, again, I will come back to the fact that there have been a few other ads like this using her tracking footage, which you know maybe takes some of her words out of context. Certainly paints her into a more liberal portrait than she might like, and still polling's tied. So we'll see what happens here. Let's switch and talk about. I want to talk about two districts in two totally different parts of the country, but back to back. First in. Uh, Kansas um, 3, and then we're going to go to New York 22, where I think the top of the ticket there will have a big impact on both races and in different ways, potentially. So first, let's talk about Kansas 3. This is incumbent Kevin Yoder. This has some Kansas City suburbs in it, and uh, with the Republican nominee Chris Kobach at the top of the ticket. He's probably not the most attractive candidate for the Kansas City suburban voter. And I think this could be a place where um, he could really, you know, on top of what's happening, you know, with, in the national environment and the president's numbers, then his unpopularity on top of that, which I hear is very, very unpopular here, that that could put a real drag on this race. Yeah, I think this will be a really interesting race. The Democratic candidate is Sharice Davids, and she got through a very close primary, and I thought this primary was fascinating, so I'm going to say a few words about it. She is a Native American lesbian, and she was the more establishment candidate running in that primary. Her opponent was a Bernie-endorsed, very progressive candidate, and she edged him out. Um, And I think she's a really interesting candidate. She was a mixed martial arts expert uh, and fighter. She's very, you know, she's grown up in Kansas, went to school, you know, at Johnson County Community College in Kansas, uh, went to the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Um, And so I think she's a really fascinating candidate here. Um, And we've seen some polling in this district just recently. She released a poll that had her up 46-43. Um, and I think this is a district that a lot of folks who don't work in house politics every day say, how on earth is a Democrat winning in Kansas? But this is the kind of suburban district that's trending away from Donald Trump. And really, you know, Democrats have a great opportunity here. The one thing, though, of note here is that she claimed that she did not support abolishing ICE and that it came out that actually, once again, Earlier in her campaign, she did say she supported abolishing ICE. So Republicans have been up with ads attacking her for her um, her flip flop on ICE, which I think is effective and good. And um, you guys are are your Democratic allies and friends are up with ads that we're going to play now attacking Kevin Yoder. We already know Congressman Yoder likes to play dress-up in Kansas. But in Washington, he gets down to business for the special interests. Yoder took over 300000 from insurance interests, then voted their way, allowing insurance companies to charge older Kansans more for their care and gut protections for people with pre-existing conditions. Congressman Yoder takes care of them, not us. DCCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. I think that is sort of a quintessential Democratic ad this cycle. They're talking about special interests. They're talking about corporate money. They're talking about health care. And so while it may not be super sexy or exciting, I think that is what (laughs) Democrats are really, you know, talking about this cycle. You know, basically, you know, kind of your basic... uh, 
pocketbook economic issues. And the candidates have also, I mean, we could, we could sit here and air 15 ads in these, in these races because these candidates have been on the air since July, both David's and Yoder. The DCCC has been up since August 7th. CLF went up August 14th. So this is a very competitive district. Again, I imagine that both sides are going to be playing hard in this race. Um, and it's interesting, this race is also a little bit tied in with the one that neighbors it to the west, which is less of a Democratic district, Kansas too, um, but it's an open seat and it's another district that's very competitive and I would guess tied in the polling. And so both parties, it's the same media market, both parties will have to decide where to prioritize their advertising dollars between this more suburban district where a Democratic challenger is trying to knock off an incumbent versus an open seat that's in a little bit more Republican-friendly territory. Right. Well, let's move over to New York 22, because this is a district where I think uh, the top of the ticket, uh, governor's race, will actually benefit our candidate. So we have incumbent Claudia Tenney, who is running against Anthony Brindisi, and they have seen a lot of advertising as well. When do people start here, Allie? Boy, Brindisi's been up since July. Claudia Tenney, with some financial help from the NRCC, has also been up since July. And then you have Republican outside groups that have been airing negative ads against Brindisi also since July. The DCCC went up mid-August on August 14th. Um, and so there has been a ton of activity here. House Majority PAC just released an ad on Tuesday of this week um, that goes after Claudia Tenney. So why don't we take a listen to that and we're also gonna listen to one of the Congressional Leadership Fund's ads as well. Around here, you work hard for your money. But in Albany, Claudia Tenney repeatedly voted against middle-class tax relief. Down in Washington, Tenney took nearly 200,000 from big banks and other financial institutions and voted for a tax plan that will give most of the benefits to the richest Americans and corporations. The plan to pay for it? Cutting your Social Security and Medicare. Claudia Tenney's not for you. House Majority PAC is responsible for the content of this advertising. So that HMP ad that was just released, you know, you'll see that Democrats are trying to tie Claudia Tenney to the unpopularity of Albany as well in this district. No one likes Albany. <laughs> yes, I think nobody likes Albany in New York. I think that is clearly the lesson to be learned. And CLF is going, uh, going out after Albany as well. So let's listen to their ad where they are tying Anthony Brindisi to Governor Cuomo and to the corruption in Albany. Albany's corruption is worse than Washington's, and politician Anthony Brindisi is part of the racket. Brindisi supported Cuomo's scandalous waste of tax dollars on the Marcy Nano Center and backed the Buffalo Billion ripoff, all while voting for Cuomo's budgets that increased state spending by $35 billion. The governor's been very good for our area. Wrong. Politician Anthony Brindisi ripped off New York taxpayers. Congressional Leadership Fund is responsible for the content of this advertising. So this ad uh, is exactly where Republicans need to be to remind Democrats that Anthony Brindisi is tied to Governor Cuomo, who people in this district do not like. He will lose this district. And once again, this is a Trump district by 54. Governor Cuomo is not performing well, and he will not perform well in this district. And tying Brindisi to Cuomo and to Albany is the, the right strategy, and I think it's one that as we create these choices between a national environment that voters don't like, but a Democratic candidate who's absolutely wrong on the issues and who also have uh, character and judgment problems, 
I think that will help and play very well in districts like this. Well, I'll be curious to see if this can work because Anthony Brindisi was a pretty well-known commodity in this district. He's been a legislator for a while, very well-liked. No question, Democrats couldn't have asked for a better candidate in this district. He's got history with these voters and they like him. His numbers are quite good. Um, And so this strategy of tying him to Cuomo, is it believable to these voters and does it change enough minds about him? That I think is the outstanding question. There was a poll that came out, an independent poll, um, at the end of August, on August 29th, that had Brindisi up 46 to Claudia Tenney, 44. Never a good sign for a Republican, for any incumbent to be trailing a challenger. But my suspicion is, is that you could poll in this district every day from now until election day. It's always going to be within the margin of error. I think this will be one of the most expensive house races, despite the fact that it's really cheap media markets. It's three cheap upstate New York media markets, Syracuse, Utica, and Binghamton. But they are going to be inundated with ads on this race from now until election day. Um, And I think it's going to come down to like a thousand votes. It's going to be really close here. And then the last district we're going to talk about is uh, Washington 8, one that you all know is near and dear to my heart. This is an open seat. Um, The Democratic candidate is pediatrician Dr. Kim Schreier. The Republican candidate is uh, former state legislator and frequent statewide candidate Dino Rossi. Um, I think, although, Liesl, you correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is the uh, open seat that was won by Hillary that Republicans might feel the most optimistic about holding. Um, It's one that I think they're certainly fighting for very hard. Um, The DCCC has been up since right after the primary, which was the week of August 14th. Congressional Leadership Fund went up on September 4th. House Majority PAC pack went up on September 12th. So there's, all, again, very expensive media market in Seattle, but there's been a lot of activity. And both candidates are on the air and have been on the air for, for the month of September. Yeah, I think we'll be able to defy history here and win an open seat that the opposing party won in the presidential last cycle. Um, we have our best candidate here we could have in Dino Rossi. Um, obviously, no one needs an introduction to him in this district. And they know the type of um, sort of problem-solving, moderate, independent candidate that he is, and that's the way he was always in Washington, even though the Democrats are trying to distort his record. And actually, he has a great ad up right now that, um, that counters, I think, the House Majority PAC argument pretty well. This is his intro positive ad. People who know me say I'm a fiscal conservative with a social conscience, and I'd probably agree with that. Controlling spending will always be important, but you can't balance the budget on the backs of the most vulnerable. In the state Senate, we eliminated the largest deficit in state history without raising taxes, and we did it while protecting our most vulnerable. I'm Dino Rossi. I approve this message, because tough problems can be solved when both sides work together. And as Lisa alluded to, I think the Democratic strategy here is to point out his record in Olympia um, and what he has fought for there and what he continues to fight for as a congressional candidate. So this is the ad that House Majority PAC put out against him um, last week. He's back, Dino Rossi. 
Rossi first showed up in Olympia decades ago. He went to work, healthcare stripped from 45,000 children, raising bed taxes in nursing homes, pushing tax breaks for corporations. Then he ran for higher office. Three losing campaigns later, Rossi returned to Olympia to push a plan raising property taxes on homeowners. Dino Rossi, after doing so much damage in Olympia, why would we ever send him to Congress? House Majority PAC is responsible for the content of this advertising. And I do have to point out that this ad was fact-checked and rated mostly true, which as we've all been through fact-checks before, when you get a mostly true, it's like cupcakes in the office. This is very <laughs> exciting to get a mostly true. Well, <laughs> we were all very excited about the mostly true. Listen, I think Dino and, and once again, I mean, he has raised a ton of money this cycle. Oh yeah. I mean, with there have been many Republican candidates who have struggled with fundraising, and he is absolutely not one of them. No, he's raised so much money, and he had this great benefit of being the only Republican on the ballot in our crazy open primary that took place on August 14th, and there were three Democrats who, you know, were, were leading the pack of, of all the Democrats that filed, and they slugged it out, and they spent all their money. Um, so Dino absolutely started, you know, his touchdown drive on the opponent's 30-yard line because he had all this money behind him, and the Democratic candidate, my guess is, basically spent down to zero in order to win her primary. Well, Dino's always attracted crossover votes, which is what you need in King County here, and he has done that, and I... Once again, I feel like if there's any district in the country where we will defy history in an open seat, it will be this one. As a native of Washington 8, as a native of this district, I cannot allow that to happen. So (laughs) I, look, Dino, I will give you credit in saying that Dino has won this district every time he has run for statewide office, which are three times, and he has lost all three of those times, but he did carry this district. Um, I just think in an era of Donald Trump, this is the kind of district, it's a pretty diverse district, highly educated district, a lot of Microsoft and Nintendo employees out here that I just think are turned off by the overall brand of the Republican Party under Donald Trump, and I don't think he's going to get those crossover votes he needs to carry this district. But it is going to be an expensive battle from here on out, and it's clear both sides are going all out to to get this seat well his messaging will be right on i know that and i know that clf and others are excited about this race i feel like we have a real opportunity and once again making democrats play hard in a district that's expensive um in an expensive media market in a suburban seat um is a good thing Well, those are our four races that we decided to focus a little bit on today. As we said at the outset of the show, it is a crazy time for everyone working in politics. There's so much going on. The fur is flying. There's lots of spending. Um, And we are here to help try to make a little sense of that for you. We will try to be back on a weekly basis in the next seven weeks, give you guys some updates on what's happening in some of these key races. Thanks for joining us.